0: You know, my father, after reading the book, said, you know, Warren, we never knew that you wanted to be a girl. This is Design
1: Matters with Debbie Millman. For 15 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Warren Lair talks about the intersections between images and letters,
0: and about the future of books. You know, I wouldn't want every book to be a film, but I'm interested in these hybrid possibilities. Here's Debbie, first with a
1: word from our sponsors.
2: Generous support for Design Matters is provided by AC Hotels and Allbirds. I love to travel. Whether it is for pleasure or business or design conferences or speaking engagements, I love to visit places I've never been before and experience new things. AC Hotels by Marriott has been striking the perfect balance of the details I want when I'm on the road. AC Hotels are intuitively designed, refined, crafted, and considered to create an elegant and unobtrusive experience that lets me maximize enjoyment, inspiration, and efficiency. The AC guest rooms provide me with everything I need and nothing I don't. They're uncluttered and truly comfortable, letting you live life by design, not by default. AC Hotels, member of Marriott Bonvoy the perfectly precise hotel. Visit AC Hotels at ac-hotels.com to learn more. I try to walk between 5 and 10,000 steps a day. Sometimes I'm successful, sometimes I'm not. But it always seems like I'm running around. What makes everything easier is walking in my Allbirds. Wearing them is like floating on air. They're cozy, like little magic sheep hugging my feet. And they're beautiful. Allbirds are designed with just the right amount of everything and nothing. They have clean lines and subtle detailing and are made from premium, all-natural materials like ZQ-certified merino wool and FSC-certified eucalyptus fibers. For a person on the run nearly all the time, wearing them is self-care personified. I can't recommend them enough. Allbirds are the perfect shoes for any style. Get your own pair at allbirds.com. Warren Lehrer is a writer, an artist, and designer. His books are graphically and typographically eye-popping, and his multimedia works have influenced two generations of designers. He's worked in audio, print, video, and theater, and his work has been collected by museums like MoMA and the Getty He is a living, breathing example that what a creative person can do is limited only by the scope of their interests and imagination and passions. He's here to talk about his career and about his latest project, a book of visual poems written by Dennis J. Bernstein that Warren composed for the page. Warren Lara, welcome to Design Matters.
0: Thank you, Debbie. It's great to be here.
2: Warren, legendary design historian Philip Meggs wrote this about you. Warren developed a rich imaginary world creating scenarios for his puppet collection and secret dolls that his parents knew nothing about. Is it true that when you were a kid you'd set up puppets on chairs as your own personal orchestra and you'd conduct them with a piece of uncooked spaghetti?
0: I heard all kinds of symphonies that were beyond my imagination, but I could gesture well. And I loved the music in my head and in the spheres around me. And I also recently was visiting my parents, and they showed me these letters and postcards that I sent to them when I was very, very young that had words spiraling from the outside to the middle and meandering down the page and made all kinds of shapes.
2: So the liaison between text and image was something that you were born with?
0: Absolutely and certainly, I do nothing about the word typography. Or, <laughs> you know, but okay. I think it was it was something that came natural to me.
2: I understand that you were considered a visual arts prodigy as a preschooler, who who declared you being the uh, prodigy.
0: <laughs> My parents. And so they sent me to art lessons with Mrs. Emmerich in the basement of the Lutheran Church on Bell Boulevard in Bayside, where I went for about six or seven years. Mrs. Emmerich, though, would really touch up my paintings and add highlights to the ocean waves and extra flair to the landscapes and still lifes. And she had a much more graceful touch. And I think although I was considered very talented, I think I was sort of clumsy about it. Awkward. In what way? Strokes. You know, it didn't, it wasn't, it's like when i in college, when I took a calligraphy class, I would look at the young woman next to me and it was coming out so graceful. And I was working more hard to get a good letter, although the compositions of what were interesting.
2: It's interesting that calligraphy is is something that is so simple yet requires Mm -hmm. so so much much skill. (laughs) It's quite extraordinary how much skill it actually requires. Your dad was an electrical engineer and your mom was an elementary school teacher. So where did the artistic inclinations come from?
0: I think I really think it came a lot from my, my father's side, particularly in music and in the love for literature. But my mother was a school teacher, and both my parents made sure that I went to museums. We, we also went to the theater once a month. Really? Yeah, not Broadway, but an equity theater uptown. And so I was introduced to that. I don't think that they meant for my brother and I to take the arts quite as seriously as we ended up doing.
2: Now, I understand that you didn't really enjoy the art classes that you were taking when you were a little boy. And and I'm wondering if if it's because of the heavy-handed way in which your art teacher edited your work, which is really something I've never heard before.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yes. And it was – real. I mean I was painting things that I wasn't seeing. I was painting bullfights. We were doing a lot of copying of paintings that had been made a long time ago. And so that was not all that inspiring. And then through junior high school and high school, I was an art major almost by default. So when I entered college, I sort of rebelled against art, believe it or not, to – major in something else, which was mass communications at the very beginning.
2: But you ultimately changed it to painting and printmaking. Pretty quickly. (laughs) What did you think you wanted to be professionally at that point in your life? Uh,
0: You know, uh, TV something. You know, I graduated, when I graduated from high school in mid-year, in December, I got a job at CBS Broadcast Center as a mailboy at delivering male to Walter Cronkite and Dan Rather and Robert Keishin, Captain Kangaroo, and I don't know what I was thinking, but there I was for about uh, eight months doing that and reading a lot of books because there's a lot of downtime when you're a male boy. (laughs) (laughs) You
2: have a really interesting history of success in the face of quite a lot of rejection And I understand that when you were working in art in college, you showed the work that you were making that was incorporating type and the visual to one of your painting teachers. And I read that he wagged his finger in your face and told you that you were a really good student, but you were barking up the wrong tree by making work like you were making. Why? Why?
0: Well, he said that words and images live in two different parts of the brain. They occupy different kinds of languages and admonished me not to ever combine them. But you didn't
2: feel – you didn't take that seriously.
0: (laughs) I think I did. I I left his office feeling like I'd been given a mission in life. Ah, you took it seriously (laughs) to
2: the other degree.
0: And for better or for worse, I've been combining words and images ever since or making images out of words –
2: But there's such an incredible history of artists combining text and image going back hundreds and maybe thousands of years. Where was he coming up with that supposition?
0: This was probably 1976. So we're talking in a fine art program where painting was painting and sculpture was sculpture and there was absolutely no graphic design whatsoever. And I think... That it's true, particularly when phonetic alphabets started to proliferate around the world, that the language systems which started out as iconographic pictorial systems parted with these phonetic systems and that words and images did separate. You know, cave paintings are claimed as the origin of visual art and they're claimed as the origin of writing as well. And it's really with that historical change of our use of language that these things really did separate. And so that's a big thing that education does even today, which is to put things in their compartments. We're going to separate. You're old enough now to know that writing is writing and visual art is visual art. No, I've since, and you and I know this very well, that There's this rich, rich history of these things coming together. But I, I, in retrospect, understand where he was coming from.
2: One of the things that I want to talk to you about a little bit more in detail later in the show is your teaching. But you are part of a book that one of my favorite guests of all time, uh, Steve Heller, just published. And it's a book about teaching design history. And you have quite an interesting chapter in the book. And you actually outline the vast history of visual storytelling from our prehistoric days. And you reference ancient pattern poetry in your syllabus. What is ancient pattern poetry?
0: Well, it dates back to Minoan Theostos disc, which historians even are not even sure what this is piece is, but they think that it is poetry and it's not prose, and it is a spiral of iconographic letter forms, and it creates a pattern, and yet it's known to have meaning. And then if you move to medieval and even early Christian pattern poems where you have words that can be read vertically, they can be read horizontally, they can be read diagonally. And it's this very, you know, we think in the 21st century that we invented interactivity. And we look Mm. at some of these pattern poems, they're operating on all these different levels, like this poem by a German Benedictine monk from the 4th century called Four Angels, which in the black letters... There is the text about the earthly domain. And then there's a drawing of an angel in each quadrant of this four-quadrant poem. And there in red lettering, superimposed on the angel, is text about the supernatural, the heavenly domain. And there are words going in these different directions. So there's a heck of a lot going on. And what year was this? This is 4th century A.D.? I
2: wonder if mm-hmm. this particular body of work influenced William Blake.
0: Whether he knew it or not.
2: Yeah. I was really happy to see in your syllabus that you included Lawrence Stern's Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy, mm-hmm. which was originally published in 1759. It's an extraordinary example of how text and image are intertwined hundreds and hundreds of years before I think anybody realized what the potential was and you write how the book is written as an autobiography of a fictional narrator and is famous for its literary parody meandering digressions double entendres, descriptions of sex, purposeful misspellings meta and graphic devices using super long dashes asterisks in place of expletives, subversive uses of arrows, florons and other dingbats embedded throughout the text, doodly lines diagramming the shape of a story, missing chapters that reappear in subsequent volumes, text printed on top of a solid black rectangle evoking the voice of a character after his death, and blank pages for readers to write their own responses. I mean, can you talk a bit about how revolutionary that book was? I am obsessed with this book, by mm-hmm. the way. It's really nine books, but I am obsessed with with this in its entirety. But I, I really contend that that book is the first postmodern book, even mm-hmm. though it was in the 17, published in 1750, whatever.
0: No, I like to continue to show my students examples of things that really predate the modern era, that have amazing typographical and meta and structural devices in them. You know, be it Lewis Carroll's Mouse's Tale and this song book from the 1800s that was a farce. It was written, the name is escaping me right now, but it was written as a sort of send-up of a play that this printer, publisher saw that thought he thought it was an absurd play. And so he did this farcical take on it, a little like chapbook, taking out most of the text and so you have these floating pieces of punctuation and an occasional word and it, and it looks so John Cage. It looks so contemporary. And he was doing this to criticize, but yeah, there it was, satire and typographical play.
2: And yet in the 1970s you had a teacher that said that you can't do that. I'm glad that it mobilized you to actually do it more. Uh, where do you find these books and these examples? I came upon Tristram Shandy quite by accident in an English lit class in mm-hmm. the, in college.
0: There are some great histories out there, like Joanna Drucker has six or seven really important texts. That the Visible Word, I think, is one of them, and. Uh, the alphabetic labyrinth, where she really analyzes, because it's one thing when you look at Marinetti or Tristan Zara or Apollinaire or Stefan Mallarmé, and you look at this stuff and you say, "Oh, that is that is so great looking," but when you read her analysis, where she's helping you understand what the text was about, translating, and what the visual metaphors were, then. That helps me have insights and understanding of that material because we could just so easily go sort of gaga over this stuff visually.
2: Well, I I do. And I I get it. I mean, Mm. the one thing that I do that I'm always cognizant of when I'm looking at visual poetry or concrete poetry or visual stories is the notion that both... Independent disciplines have to be of a certain quality in order for this to really work. You have to be as good a writer as mm-hmm. you are artist mm-hmm. or designer. You have to be as good a designer or artist as you are writer, yeah. which means that you essentially have to be a polymath, which isn't mm-hmm. that easy. Yeah. You went on to pursue an MFA in graphic design at Yale, and I understand that you were surprised by what you refer to as the underlying corporate sensibility of the program, Talk about that a little bit.
0: Well, I really entered grad school with an illusion as to what graphic design was. I really was this fine art major, and I had a different teacher who introduced me to Kurt Schwitters and... Dieter Rowe, and uh, Norman Ives, the ah, work of so Norman wait, Ives. Ah, so wait, this
2: is somebody who was your mentor, Lewis Finkelstein. Yes,
0: my great teacher and someone who also taught me how to teach, I think.
2: He also taught you something about turtles and <laughs> grasshoppers.
0: <laughs> you do your homework. He said, Warren, you move uh, too much like a grasshopper. I think you should move a little bit more like a turtle because I, I did have a tendency to jump and I and I still jump, but I think I, I have more focus from which I'm jumping. But he said that Alvin Eisenman, who was the director of the program at Yale at the time, had said, you know we do the best abstract art here in the graphic design program, the MFA program at Yale. And he said that to me. and then when I came up for an interview, They showed me concrete poetry, you know, thesis projects that were visual literature. They fed my illusion as to graphic design being this pursuit of abstract literature. And I found that my classmates, who I very much like and learned from and had a good time with, did have a different pursuit. I mean, they were interested in working in a more traditional way for clients and getting assignments, and in many cases that ended up being corporate. So, yeah, but I, coming to this more as a fine artist and a writer, had my own project. So when I was given assignments, other people's problems to solve, it seemed puzzling to me because I had plenty of my own.
2: You talk about how you try to write in a way that considers the form of thought, Mm -hmm. the shape of thought, Mm -hmm. and the shape of space and speech. How do you go about doing that?
0: Well, that really started at Yale when I eventually worked on this thesis project that was eight dialogues, eight conversations, and the title of that book was called Versations. So I'm also playing with the word verse, and I read plays, I read scripts a lot, and it always bothered me that the flow of the reading, if you're reading the name of the character and then the dialogue, the name of the character the dialogue, so that didn't seem like a working system to me, so I came up with a system where you set each character in a different typeface and sort of configuration based on their personality, and you list their name once at the top and then their narrative, their dialogue, is not poured into an arbitrary column, but like in verse, the line breaks are very specific based on pause in the thought or breath in the speech, and also in this book, Versations, the kind of relationship that the two, if they were flirting or if someone was being proselytized to, those configurations were different. and So it was
2: like visual cues almost. Visual
0: cues and performance scores because I was looking at musical notation.
2: I understand that part of the reason you wanted to go to Yale was because you wanted to learn the tools to compose your mm-hmm. own books. What do you mean by compose? How do you compose a book?
0: Well, there is even in letterpress, the composing stick – And I write in my character, Blue Mobley, in this illuminated novel that I wrote that he first got turned on to the letterpress shop when he was 14 years old in the junior high school. And anyone who was in the letterpress shop had to work on the school newspaper. And so you also became a reporter. And one day he had written his text, typewritten it, and brought it in. He was going to set it in the composing stick, which is that metal rack that you put the individual pieces of metal type. But he left it at home. And so he just started writing a composition spontaneously, based on the news, things actually Vietnam at the time, a story. And and he composed his first work of fiction, in the composing stick. So that's one way that the term comes from. But for me, when you take um, an intro to, you know, a freshman writing class in college, it's called composition. And when you take um, 2D design, it's called composition. And when you bring these things together, it's composition. And so when I write, at its best, when it's really visual in its inception, I'm composing the text.
2: I read that when you showed your thesis versations, to an art dealer or a book dealer, the man admired its artful density, then advised you to come back when you were dead. (laughs) Why? Why was it so difficult for him to wrap his brain around what you were doing?
0: I think he thought it was wonderful, but in terms of... He was an antiquarian dealer, so... You know, he saw that this could maybe have historical significance or uh, Did you give him
2: rights of first refusal? <laughs> uh, no,
0: I just tucked in the humiliation and went to the next place, which, you know, I was – I in the beginning I did. I went around to stores and I got my stuff into stores. And I remember uh, my book French Fries a bunch of years later. I went to Books and Company near the Whitney at the time. And they bought 10 copies of French fries. And I went in a few weeks later to see if there were still copies left or how it was doing. And I'm looking for it. Now it's a play. So I'm looking for it in the drama section. I don't see it. Well, it's sort of a visual book, too. So I looked for it in the art section and design section. It's not there. And then I found it in the cookbook section. I was
2: going to say, what about food? <laughs>
0: <laughs> and there it was. And and so I went up to a person at the counter and I said, or the buyer, I can't remember who it was, but um, excuse me, uh, my book. And it's there, but it's it's in cookbooks, but it's not a cookbook. And actually, the guy had a British accent. He says, actually, it's doing quite well. We'd like to have another 10 copies, So, you know, I couldn't argue with that. It's doing well in the cookbook section. Keep it
2: there. Well, maybe... Cooks have more imagination. Um, when you were publishing Blue Mobile, you also got stacks and stacks of rejection letters. From what I understand, what has kept you persevering? <laughs> Why did has... I
0: kill myself a long time no, ago? No, no, no. Yeah. I, I am,
2: I am somebody that also has tended to keep pushing, even in the face mm-hmm. of deep humiliation. I'm not saying that yeah. you were humiliated, <laughs> but I've been rejected more than mm-hmm. I even want to remember. What, what kept you persevering?
0: I do have a strong motivation to keep working i i'm a workaholic on my artwork and in between all those rejections there are acknowledgments and nice reviews and recognition I think the hardest thing is falling between the cracks because when you're a writer and you're a visual artist and you're a graphic designer and you do performance and you can't find yourself falling between the cracks. Well,
2: it's not easy to categorize you.
0: I don't know. I have, I'm driven from within. And I think if I ever made something that I thought was really perfect, I may just stop. And I think because I'm always somewhat dissatisfied with what I've made, it keeps me going.
2: How would you know that something was perfect?
0: Well, I wouldn't see the flaws, right?
2: Well, it seems like it's sort of subjective. What is a flaw, right?
0: Well, yeah, but, you know, of my own work, you know. So it's always a funny thing. Like when you come out with a new book, you're, you're out there peddling it. And you believe in it and you do, you know, but you're all also like onto the next thing and finding in yourself what you could have done better.
2: <laughs> you reference French fries and French fries was, I believe, your first collaboration with Dennis Bernstein, who you've since collaborated with again on your current book. French fries tells the story of a fast food restaurant following the murder of a customer and brings the scene to vivid life by using expressive typography and design critic Julie Lasky said this about it and it's a, it's a somewhat long quote but I do think it's worth repeating Lehrer has pursued the anatomically challenging goal of helping the eye to hear and the ear to see. The page becomes a field where positive and negative space interact so that the spaces between words express silence, distance, passing time. Interwoven lines of dialogue overlap as words take on thought's very form, bringing sensory experience to the reader as directly as ink on paper can allow. And wherein your subsequent books have sought to find the shape of interior thought patterns and the spoken word through typography and iconography and image. Do you feel that books should always have a visual artistic component to them?
0: No, not at all. I think, you know, Craig Maud writes about with the iPad coming on the scene— as compared to the Kindle, in making this distinction between formless content, text that's just written as text and can do just fine being poured into a Kindle column. And of course, the crystal goblet as a, another metaphor for transparent text. And we all read that way and it works very well. But I think there are some of us who just can't help but see... The writing that we're writing or if in this case, you know, also – or collaborating with a, with a writer. So there's no reason for all literature, all poetry, all documentary works that use text to be that way. But I think we're living in a very visual culture and more more writers have at their disposal these choices. I mean they always had choices. You know, on a typewriter, you can do a heck of a lot of things. Uh, but n- now, more and more writers are are thinking about the shape of their text, and that isn't necessarily just for the page. You know, it could be for interactive screen-based reading as well. And so, it's getting it's getting pretty interesting.
2: You've said that writers should not take for granted certain visual aspects of the book: type selection, size, placement. Do you think readers take them for granted?
0: Well, readers will go with what you present them. I think more that the form of a book for the longest time post you know, Gutenberg was taken for granted. I mean, it was just the, a very convenient vehicle for transporting text. And so eventually the means of production that grows out of Gutenberg got faster and faster and more mechanical and churning out these books that didn't matter what they were about. If they were about experimental jazz, if they were about the life and times of Donald Trump, they look the same. And I think one of the nice things about the threat to books right now is that it liberates the book to not only be this convenient vehicle, because we have them in the palms of our hands, these very convenient vehicles that really couldn't just as well replace the paperback book. So now people can think about the turning of the page, and it's not so much the reader. It's up to the makers to think about the book as an art form like filmmakers think about cinema as an art form and study film theory and think about all these attributes of the book, just like if you're writing for a song or if you're writing for the stage, it's very different. But how many writers really think about these physical properties of the book, like the turning of the page?
2: I actually read something recently about how car makers, automobile makers, go as far as testing the sound that the closing of a door makes to test what range it should be in relation to what people want.
0: You see, they are digging the form and seeing, (laughs) you know, this...
2: Yes. In 2013, one of your best and most popular books was published. It's titled A Life in Books, The Rise and Fall of Blue Mobley and features the title character writing 101 books before going to prison and fictitiously authoring this book. And you bring each book and its cover to life, 101 books. How on earth did you come up with the ideas for 101 books?
0: Well, some of them had been stockpiling. You know, my previous five books were Documentary works were nonfiction, although they were expressionistic in their form. they were about real people it was crossing the boulevard, which I did with my wife Judith Sloan, about new immigrants and refugees from all over the world who live in Queens. Prior to that, I did this series of portrait books about eccentric Americans and I felt after the Crossing the Boulevard project, which also had an exhibit and other branches to it, that I needed to invent. I needed to do a project where I could make stuff up, but maybe get at the truth in a deeper kind of way. So that was the impetus for that book. You know, I get these book ideas. I'm always walking around with a notebook. And so I had some of those, but it took a while to figure out what the story arc was and who this writer was. And I sort of early on knew he was in prison, looking back on his life and career. So I was also interested in this contrast between the narrative of of a maker, of an artist, of a writer in this case, compared with the work that they make and sort of presenting to the reader that relationship of the creative process.
2: I was envisioning how you could possibly keep track of the linear narrative in a book like this and imagined your whole house filled with papers in terms of the direction of the story and how one book connects to another, which connects to an event, which connects
0: to a time, and... It was exhausting. (laughs) Just thinking about it. uh, Imagine doing it. Well, Um, that part seemed mm -hmm. really fun. Uh, Very fun. But I did keep charts that kept changing because sometimes I would have a book idea and I would think it came at a certain, let's say, mid-career for Blue Mobley. And then I had come up with the title, and the titles are often funny, and the covers then – do something else. And then sometimes I write the excerpt. So there are excerpts of many of these books which read like short stories. So I write the excerpt. And then after writing the excerpt, I discover something about Blue Mobley, since he wrote it, that I hadn't realized. And then the chart changes. And meanwhile, I'm continuing to write his narrative. So it's this Huge puzzle back and forth kind of.
2: Sound of a Mobius strip. <laughs> the titles of the books are extraordinary. Some of my favorites. I think my number one favorite is The Phenomenology of Lint. Absolutely amazing title. Then there was Declassified, which seems like it was an inspiration for the redacted Mueller Report. There's the self help book, Yes, I Can't, a How Not to book. There's peace is just another word for nothing left to kill, which was outstanding. And then <laughs> privatizing air and other untapped resources. How long did it take you to come up with 101 books?
0: Well, that was an eight-year writing process while teaching at two different colleges and touring and doing everything else. But eight years, eight-year writing process
2: the similarities between you and Blue Mobley are, are interesting. For instance, you both have roots in letterpress. You both appreciate how the printing press democratized knowledge. How much of you is in Blue, aside from the fact that he's in prison and you're not
0: yet? You know, my father, after reading the book, said, you know, Warren, we never knew that you wanted to be a girl, <laughs> right, and and here he's reading a novel in which the protagonist doesn't have a father, and yet <laughs> there's this uh, identification with or, or assumption too that this is just an alter ego. So I would say about fifty percent. Blue's
2: mother struggles with bipolar illness, but is also Blue's muse. How did you come to understand mental illness and learn to write about it with such empathy?
0: through friendships with people who struggle with that. So I've I've just learned through experience and, you know, my own latent lack of normalcy.
2: <laughs> you consider the book an illuminated novel. Mm-hmm. What does that mean?
0: Well, it means a couple of things. Blue's writings illuminate his life, his life illuminate his writings, but... Also, in terms of the graphic approach, instead of an illustrated novel, I like to think that the images, which in this case, in the case of that book was mostly the book covers, that they add to the text, that they combine with the text to tell a story instead of just sort of giving you pictures of what you're reading in the text.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think in this case, one plus one equals way more than two. It's like <laughs> five or seven, maybe, because there's so much of the story that is built between the books and the text and the visuals. Mm -hmm. I understand that when you were doing events for the book launch, people would come up to you and ask you if Blue was still in prison or even still alive and then be shocked to learn that you'd made the entire thing up. And that vexed you at first. How come?
0: Well, I think I enjoyed it at first because there is a very similitude to the whole thing that if people suspend their disbelief so much that they think the character is real and the whole thing is real that's kind of a great thing but on the other hand i it vexes me only because i'm i'm not into fooling people mm. um i wasn't really trying to put one over on anyone it says an illuminated novel on the copyright page, it says that this is a work of fiction. Everything is made up. And so that, that's the only you know, sort of vexing part of
2: it. I think that it's so convincing as a life story that it could easily be a, an autobiography. You've said that you're working on fleshing out one of mm-hmm. Blue Mobley's books into a complete novel. So which one and how's it going and when will we see that?
0: So I was pretty full-on into that, more than halfway written, I think, when I then took up working on this new book that just came out with Dennis Bernstein of poems that are now visual. So I put a timeout on that book, and I'm hoping to get back to it in a matter of months. And the book is called Trace, a surveilled novel, and everything that you read in this book is by virtue of some surveillance technology. So it's through emails, uh, texts, surveillance cameras, bank statements, police reports, your laptop camera looking at you, or someone activating that. So everything that is read is through that. And it's a very difficult piece to write because it's not written from a first person in that way. But I'm having fun with it.
2: Let's talk about your brand new book, Five Oceans in a Teaspoon. Beautiful title. Uh, This is a collection of poems by Dennis J. Bernstein, your longtime collaborator that you've brought to life visually. The book's roots date back to 1979 when you began working on a collection of Bernstein's short poems dubbed Stretch Marks. But things took a detour, and you and Dennis pursued the pieces Social Security and French Rise and other projects instead. Stephen Heller dubbed you and Bernstein the Lennon and McCarthy of Vizlit. How close of contact have you maintained with Bernstein over the years?
0: We've remained good friends, let me see. The last book that we did together prior to this was Grrr, A Study of Social Patterns which was 1988, but then in 2012 his book A Special Ed Poems About Being a Special Ed Teacher and he was also a special ed student is a book that I helped edit and I designed but in a more traditional way, really pulled back and letting the poems do their thing. And then I was visiting him in 2014 or 15 when I was touring with A Life in Books, and he started showing me these new poems that he was writing in small pads, smaller than I'm used to seeing him because he's always writing. He's always got these notebooks, so he's writing these shorter poems. And then I started translating some of these things typographically.
2: What was the collaboration like? Did you have to show him what you were doing in sketch form to get his feedback? Or did you show him finished compositions and and then hope that he loved what he was looking at?
0: So right there in San Francisco where he lived. So we've been 3,000 miles apart for 30 years I showed him this one poem, which was called Ten Smiles, where he had actually done a little drawing of Ten Smiles, and I translated that into parentheses, the smiles, and I showed it to him right away, and he really liked it, and very quickly we decided that we were going to do this as sort of co-equal collaborators. And then, you know, sometimes it's 100, 200 pages of iterations till I think... It couldn't be any other way. And that's when I felt ready to send him in an email.
2: So it might have had 100 iterations before you would send. Yeah. Wow.
0: And That
2: takes a lot of courage (laughs) in giving somebody feedback
0: after 100 iterations. Uh, Well, hopefully it just comes out gracefully like (laughs) it couldn't be any other way.
2: Now he's going to hear this and think, (laughs) oh, my God, what did I do to him? I don't really like the W (laughs) in that one, Warren. Can you... Fletch it around
0: a little bit. But mostly he says, and he said at the time, this was like a gift. And, you know, he's struggling with various things. And he'd get this sort of gift in the morning. But also sometimes he would say, wait, you can't break that line there. Because I didn't always stick to the lineation that he had. That's the one nice
2: thing about both writing and designing your own yeah. work. You can be your <laughs> yeah. own editor and yeah. change anything you want when you're yeah. working with somebody else's writing, not so, so much.
0: So they those negotiations.
2: Some of the poems require a bit of effort on the part of the reader to discern. Um, there's a poem that I'm referring to called "Avowal." How do you regard the notion of putting the reader to work?
0: Well, it's, it's funny, too, because in that poem, which basically ends up, saying that the vowels are in control of the consonants. So the minor, a minority, which are vowels, are like running the show. Reading the poem would be much better than what I just said. So it, it, it is a mystery. When you just look at the poem, you can't read it. You have to piece it together. And I love that. I love the idea of engaging the reader in the activity of reading. And then hopefully when they pieced it together, it's, it's a revelation and it could cause a smile and
1: they and can the agree Tiffany. with that or
0: not. I mean, yeah. some people might think, well, no, consonants rule the roost in the, in the alphabet. And then I've, done an anim- I've been doing animations of these two and I did an animation of that one. You know, and people don't have any idea what's going on at first, but then it reveals itself.
2: The animations are really quite wonderful and serve as their own performances of the poems. And the poem that you you animated for Living with Alzheimer's, for example, we see and experience a letter struggling to become words, searching for memory, thoughts halt, rotate, stretch, in a confusion of pleasure and of frustration and of habit and of empathy. Um, And in many ways, it feels as if this book is the sum total of your numerous approaches that you've developed over the years. Would you say that that's correct?
0: There is. You know, I was talking before about being self-critical. I'm not that critical of this book. And I think part of the thing is how pared down it is. And I take the cue from Dennis's writing in that. These poems don't have one extra word that isn't necessary. So I try to distill the design or the visualization as i put it in a similar way and i think something is really working in that combination and that's you know the title five oceans in a teaspoon dealing with a swath of a, an entire life but also dealing with issues of war and peace and all kinds of social issues in these poems distilled and that's you know what I'm what I'm trying to do in the design as well.
2: It's quite a perfect little book, <laughs> and when I say little, I don't mean in stature; I mean in size because it's a small, small, little square.
0: And I I will say that a lot of my own books are voluminous. Yes, they you know, are. They're four hundred page, alive in books with a hundred one books within it, a thousand page portrait series of four books, and, you know, I'm a little more John Coltrane in that kind of approach to my writing and everything.
2: We talked a little bit about your teaching before, but I do have one, one additional question. You began at the University of Massachusetts in Dartmouth, and since 1982 have taught at the School of Art and Design at SUNY Purchase. Um, In 1996, you were also a founding faculty member of the Designer as Author, the Now Designer as Entrepreneur program here at SVA with Stephen Heller and Lita Tellerico. You've written that some of your techniques in teaching harken back to your days teaching drama as a camp counselor. Tell us more. As a teacher, I'm really curious about this.
0: Uh, For instance, I put on a production of The Hobbit, what year? I don't know. Early early. It's quite an ambitious story to tell Uh with camp outside members. So the the audience had to go from scene to scene. We moved from
2: Oh, it sounds like Sleep No More. (laughs) (laughs) And
0: and I set it to Beatles music. Um, so drama techniques, theater exercises can help loosen students who maybe, let's say, particularly if I'm teaching writing might think writing might be very frightening for them. And so I want them not to be writing from a place of being scared and also not just writing with their fingers if we're working with pen or but, you know, to, to write with a brush and to write with their whole body. And there's any number of exercises that I do that can help loosen up and make connections between things that maybe if you were just sitting there at a desk, you wouldn't.
2: I have have one last question for you, Warren, and then I'd like to ask you to read something from one of your books, and, and you can tell us a little bit about what it is and where it's coming from. But my last question is this. You've constantly made us reassess and rethink what we know about books, what we expect from books, what books can be. Do you think there are still more possibilities to explore?
0: Oh, definitely. There's definitely a renaissance in the book. You know, look at the New York Art Book Fair. Just in terms of the all these young people who are going to that, maybe they're not all that into books. Maybe they just want to be seen at that scene. But a lot of
2: even if you want to be seen around books, I think that's that's quite quite an improvement. (laughs) And,
0: And you know, I'm also interested in hybrid possibilities between page and screen and you know I don't feel attached necessarily to what we mean by a book physically so as long as we're telling stories and working with language and trying to help people have empathy for situations they might not otherwise know about. You know, I wouldn't want every book to be a film, but at the same time, I'm interested in these hybrid possibilities and the evolution of the book.
2: Will you read an excerpt for us? love to. Tell us what you are going to read from. I'm
0: going to read from A Life in Books. Early in the book, when Blue is describing his... First encounter with the letterpress shop. Let's hear it. Terrified by the prospect of losing limbs or consciousness, I was drawn to the print shop where the mild-mannered Mr. Guy Gutierrez presided, a lonely king in an ink-splotched robe crowned with a green see-through visor. I fell in love with that kingdom on the first day of seventh grade. It was terribly outdated, no offset presses, linotype, or even mimeograph machines, no phototypositors or stat cameras. It was simply a carefully preserved letterpress shop, a la Gutenberg, with lead and wood type, which meant you had to set every word of text by hand, one letter at a time, the only shop that required no real mechanical or physical prowess. The print shop, otherwise known as letterpress, was more akin to playing with blocks. I loved the feel of the wood furniture used to square up type to the press, the smell of typewash, the sound of properly inked-up rollers, like the purr of butter in an iron skillet on a low flame. I loved all the terms and expressions Mr. Gutierrez used to describe the craft he had once practiced at places like the New York Post and the Herald Tribune. I loved that typefaces came in families and individual characters were made up of eyes, ears, and sometimes tails with finial swashes, and pages had headers and footers set into galleys that got chased to the bed of the press and locked up with a key, and images, image blocks could bleed off the edge of a page or across the gutter, and using just the right amount of padding made a kiss impression on the paper, like lipstick on a cheek, as opposed to too much pressure, which bites the paper. However old world this world was, it was a new world to me, full of corporeal letters and aromatic solvents.
2: Warren Lehrer, thank you for making such a wonderful, wonderful book and for really changing the way that books can be seen and experienced for all time. Thank you so much for being on Design Matters
0: today. Thank you so much, Dave. It was a great pleasure.
2: You can learn more about Warren Lehrer and his work at warrenlehrer.com. This is the 15th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. I'd also like to thank AC Hotels by Marriott and Allbirds for their generous support of this podcast. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
1: If you love this podcast please consider contributing to our brand new patreon community members get early access to the podcast transcripts of every interview invitations to live shows q a sessions with guests and a brand new annual magazine you can learn more about this at patreon.com forward slash debbie millman if you subscribe to this podcast through apple podcasts please write a review or link to the podcast on social media Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts, Master's in Branding program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland.